morning. You guys doing well? Good to have you with us this morning. Correction with the newcomers party, it's uh, not at two. It's right after the second service. Now, maybe he was thinking I was going to go really, really, really long, <laughs> which doesn't surprise me. But uh, we usually finish up about 12.30, so if you're going to come back, don't come back at 2 because we might not be here. But uh, be here at uh, 12.30 right after the second service. Good to have you with us. Hey, uh, there's a couple right back here that I don't see. Where's uh, Lynn? There she is. Lynn and Andrew, they got married. Why don't you guys stand? They got married a few weeks ago. My son Ryan uh, did the wedding. Congratulations. Good to see you guys. Still on your honeymoon? They still have that glow. Awesome. Good to see you guys. God bless you. Um, Got a great study here this morning. We're wrapping up this. This is the series finale. If you have your Bibles, you can turn to Matthew 7. We'll look at verses 13 through 27. Wrapping up City on a Hill. It's really been our marching orders here at Desert Breeze. in our new venue, new place, new location here on I-17. Three Ways to Live is the title of this weekend's message. And let me begin with a quote. It's a Barna study. A 2011 Barna study shows that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed what would be classified as the sinner's prayer. How many by show of hands know what I'm talking about when I say the sinner's prayer? Sinner's prayer, okay, most people do or prayed a prayer to ask Jesus into their life or into their heart. So let me say that again. It shows that nearly half of all adults in America have prayed such a prayer and subsequently believe they are going to heaven, though many of them rarely, if ever, attend a church, read the Bible personally, or have uh, lifestyles that differ in any significant way from those outside the church. Pretty interesting stats. Um, Let me ask you this question, big question, really important question. How can you know beyond all doubt that you are saved? This is a serious question, not just because it keeps some people from a state of fear, but because it keeps others from uh, being dead wrong. And if there's a whole lot of people that think that they're Christians, that they're headed to heaven, that aren't, we need to get to the bottom of this and find out, hey, well, what, what constitutes uh, a true Christian? Um, this is a hard-hitting text. Kind of interesting how Jesus kind of wraps up... Uh, The Sermon on the Mount, greatest sermon ever preached by Jesus. He wraps it up with some pretty hard-hitting truths. And Jesus, in this text, is warning us that there are a vast number of people who seem assured of a salvation that they don't actually possess. The deceiver, that's one of his many names, our adversary, the devil, who prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. The deceiver loves to keep the truly saved unsure of their salvation and the truly unsaved sure of their salvation and so this morning i don't want to create unnecessary doubt but i do want you to have an assurance of your faith which is truly truly a foretaste of heaven how many are familiar with the hymn blessed assurance that's a, it's a wonderful hymn blessed assurance how does that go jesus is mine oh what a foretaste of Glory divine. There's a section in that uh, 
in that hymn that also says, filled with his goodness, lost in his love. That's what I want for you. I mean, the assurance of your salvation is indeed a, a slice of heaven on earth. And so when we finish up today, I hope that you, you have that experience more than anything. And you really know for sure that, hey, you know what? You do have a relationship with God. And so that's where we're headed with our study this morning. We'll be reading uh, Matthew 7, verses 13 through 27. Let's begin with a word of prayer. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's begin with prayer, and then we'll dive into our text. Glorious Father, it's, it is obvious that you want us to be certain about, about our salvation. You sent your Son to rescue us. You have given us your word to instruct us, you indwell us with your Holy Spirit to comfort us. And in fact, you motivate us and transform us, not by the uncertainty of fear, but by the security of your love. It tells us in 1 John four eighteen, it's your perfect love that chases away all fears. So we pray this morning that you would comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. May nominal Christians truly put their faith in you. May sleepy Christians wake up. May fervent Christians have coals added to their spiritual fire. May our hearts, may our hearts be captivated by your breathtaking beauty and indescribable glory. Overtake us this morning with your presence, your power, your peace. We pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said... Amen. So let's take a look at this text. And uh, pretty interesting text. It's been a, a bit of a, through the years as I've gone back to this text, a bit of a frightening text for me as I've used it to really analyze my own, own life. Starting at verse 13, he says, Enter by the narrow gate. Why should we do that? He goes on and says, For the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. So you got that contrast here. He's going to work on a contrast. Many versus, for the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are what? How many? Few, yeah. So you got this contrast between many and few. So he's telling us that we need to enter by the narrow gate. And we'll talk about what that means. And then so he's got this, that metaphor, and now he's going to go to another metaphor. So there's actually like four different metaphors he, we're working on this morning. Here's the next one. He's going to talk about false teachers or false prophets. He says, beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing. So outwardly, they look really good. They're attractive. They sound like they're say, saying all the right things. But inwardly are ravenous wolves... You will recognize them by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? So every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus you will recognize them by their fruits. So you've got uh, fruitfulness there and, and trying to understand that. Certainly have to define that. And then the next he goes on and he said, and this is the section that has always kind of been a bit stirring for me. He says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name? 
and do, and do many mighty works in your name. And then will I declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. It's pretty heavy. And then uh, verse 24, he says, Everyone then who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock. And notice this. Look, listen to how descriptive. He's pretty emphatic. He says, And the rain fell, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine. So note, it's not that you don't hear these words. He's talking now, this contrast is that this is a person that hears the words of Christ. And yet, what does he do about them? Does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand. And the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house. And it fell and great was the fall of it. This is the word of the Lord to us this morning. So... Pretty heavy-duty stuff here that we're looking at. And so uh, this is uh, how I, as I worked through that, this is how I divided it up. Three sections. This is kind of the flow of it. I think, I believe that he's giving us a spiritual wake-up call. So this is a spiritual wake-up call to self-denial that leads to a life that most only dream about. That would be kind of the summary statement of where we're headed this morning. I think this is how I kind of summarize this whole section of Scripture. Let me say that again, so we'll unpack each one of these. A spiritual wake-up call to self-denial that leads to a life that most only dream about. So let's talk about that. So first of all, spiritual wake-up call, we'll look at verses 21 through uh, 23. Now, who are these people? I mean, this is a horrible ending. I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. And there's four things. Let's just kind of walk through this that you get. Verse 22, he says... What they are doing, they're doing in Jesus' name three times, in your name. We did these things in your name, in your name. So they are professing Christians who have been baptized. So it seems as though they're, they've attended maybe Desert Breeze and uh, they profess to be a Christian. They even went to the baptism party and got baptized. And the next thing is that they, they call him Lord. The word is kurios. Uh, attribution of deity. They are orthodox in their doctrine. They believe that Jesus is the Son of God. And, and then we also see in this text is that they, they say, Lord, Lord. They just don't say Lord, but they say Lord, Lord, which really speaks of intensity of emotion in the Semitic language. If you remember when Jesus was at uh, the home of Mary and Martha, and what did he say? Martha, Martha. So it speaks of passion. When you look in the Old Testament of David when he lost his son Absalom, 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 my son. So it speaks of deep emotion. So they say, Lord, Lord. And then the fourth thing that we see is that they are prophesying, casting out demons, and doing many mighty works. So these people are even gifted. And they're doing some pretty profound things. People in ministry bearing fruit, helping people to experience spiritual liberation. People's lives are being changed. So those are the people he's talking about. And, and so here's the point. It's, it, this is your fill in the blank. So you can profess to be a Christian, have orthodox doctrine, great passion, and even help people to experience life change, but not know God. That's, that's the point. That's crazy. See, and, and as, I, as I examined this, the absence of these traits demonstrate 
you're not a Christian. So these traits need to be a part of your life. This would be certainly characteristics of people who are truly Christians. But just because you have these, you know, the presence of these doesn't guarantee that you are a Christian. Did you guys track with me on that, what I just said? So if you're a Christian, you certainly need to have these. These would be part of your life. But just because you have these doesn't mean that you are a Christian. That's the point that he's making. So you could, you could actually look at someone and you would think, wow, they're, they're really a great believer. And, and yet they're not, based on what he says here. And we don't know their heart. And so, I mean, uh, I, don't, I don't know you. That's what he says here. He says, I, I don't know you. And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. So it seems as though that uh, having a relationship with God, you can have all these things on the outside, but if you don't know him, see, and that's the essence of, of having a relationship with God, is knowing God. And that's why it says in uh, John seventeen three, one of the verses there I put down on, on your notes, this is eternal life that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And, and by the way, that knowledge is not just a concept of God, but it's a it's an experience of God in your life. That he's, he's not... Uh, not just somebody that you kind of, oh yeah, the man upstairs, oftentimes I hear people use that kind of language, but no, no, you have him in your life, that he's more real to you than anything. He's more satisfying to you than anything in this, this world. So it's not just an intellectual ascent where there are certain biblical truths, because see, you can know a lot about God and know a lot about godliness and, and, not, and not know God. And so it it's means to have that, uh, it's a hard experience based on the objective truth of God's word. That you, you're walking with him, you're enjoying him, you're knowing him, you're experiencing him. And this is what I found really interesting as I explored this a little bit more. That there's a major difference between using God and serving God. You get that a little bit in, in verses 21 through 23. Uh, using God, did you notice that they said in verse 22, did we not, did we not do these things in your name? I mean, we, we deserve accolades from you god we deserve some kind of blessing because we did these things did we not and there's three things that he talks about and that way that's a that's an attitude of using god versus serving god serving god is verse 21 he says not everyone who says to me lord lord will enter the kingdom of heaven but the one who does the will of my father so there's a difference between using God and actually serving God. It is the difference between you feeling that God owes you for your goodness versus you forever owing God for his. You guys understand what I'm saying with that? If you have an attitude that says, hey, well, I went to church, I read my Bible and pray, and this is what I get from God? Is this the best you can do in my life? You were using God. When you understand uh, who God is and you live with the sense that he's talking about here, that he's more real to you than anything that you've ever experienced, uh, believe me, you're not going to use God. I think initially we all come to God, we kind of use him. But when you move from using to serving, you are just tickled to death that you have him in your life because you know that his grace is sufficient. You can face anything. There's a major difference between uh, using and, and serving. And, and it can be seen in, with that attitude that you are forever, you feel forever indebted to God for what he's done for you and who he is in your life and how big he is in your life. There's a, here's another couple verses you can put down on your notes. I didn't put them on as the cross-references, but they're great verses. I had my kids memorize these years ago, and they're great verses, Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. 
I'll give you a little bit of a paraphrase of, of those verses. It says, let not the wise man boast of his wisdom or the strong man boast of his strength or the, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast of this, that he knows God, that he understands and knows God. And, and, and this is how I would summarize that statement. The smartest, most athletic or wealthiest people in the world have nothing on those who know God. You know how we admire people that are really wealthy and really athletic? Oh, my goodness, look how athletic he is. And, uh, or even very wise or the highly educated, the Bill Gates kind of guys and the, and the Donald Trumps and uh, whoever great sports figure out there that you like. Uh, that verse is saying that the smartest, most athletic or wealthiest people in the world have nothing on those who know God. I had somebody, I, I, I tweet... Do you guys know what that means? What's Twitter? It's kind of a weird deal. Probably nobody even pays attention. And, and that's fine. But I, I put things on there because I'm processing things and I'll tweet things. And I tweet it and then it goes onto my Facebook and then I'll get responses. And, and I had uh, somebody actually respond to this when I said this. They said, now just to get Christians to believe this. This idea that the smartest, the most athletic, or the wealthiest people in the world have nothing on those who know God. And the person said that. And I, I, I could point them out in here, but I don't want to embarrass uh, them here in the service. But, uh, but Gary and Carol Velasquez. Um, <laughs> and it was a great, really, really a great response. Who was that? Was that you, Gary? Okay, that was really a great response, Gary. And... Uh, and he goes, now just to get Christians to believe this. And I go, boy, isn't that the truth? And I said, and the reason why they don't believe is because they don't know God. I said, because you know, if you know God, that's a no-brainer. Of course. All the money, wealth, athleticism in the world doesn't even come close to, to knowing God. Now, those are all, I mean, I, I, you certainly want to pursue those things, but don't make them the passion of your life, the purpose of your life. The purpose of your life is to know God. And uh, so here's a group of people that look pretty talented. They're pretty gifted. That's what he's talking about. Boy, they look good on the outside. And yet, on the day of judgment, I don't even know you. That, that's the worst thing that could happen to you is for you not to know God and for him not to know you. So regardless of how good you might look on the outside, that's the point. So that's a spiritual wake-up call. Spiritual wake-up call. To what? Self-denial. Verses 13 through, uh, through 14 Uh, Notice this passage talks about two gates, two ways, two trees, two people, two houses. And if you go back through the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that Jesus makes this contrast, I mean, really throughout the book. Matthew 6, remember when we talked about prayer and he talked about two people praying? He didn't say one was praying and one wasn't praying, but he's talking about two people praying. And then he talks about two people fasting, two people giving to the poor. So who are these two people? What's the contrast here? And immediately most people think, and I used to think this for years, it's the good guys, bad guys. You know, it's the moral and the immoral. It's the Christians and the non-Christians. But that's not true. That's not what he's talking about here. Um, The two roads, the the two trees, the two people, the two houses all look the same on the outside. So the idea here when you really begin to explore this is that, yeah, that you got two people sitting next to each other on a Sunday morning. And they are reading their Bible. They're praying. They're coming to church regularly they're trying to obey the ten commandments and yet they're totally different on the inside of why they do what they do that's the idea here that's the contrast that he's making you can look good on the outside and still be messed up on the inside you can be doing it for all the wrong reasons 
And, uh, and so here's the two basic, and, and this was what, this is why I'm a believer today when I begin to understand this really clearly. So this is a self, self-denial, so a spiritual wake-up call to self-denial. Here's the two roads, grace righteousness and works righteousness. You've heard us talk about this before, but maybe if you're new, you don't know what that means. But grace righteousness and works righteousness, this is what separates Christianity from all the major cults and religions of our world today. This is what separates Christianity from, from anything and everything, really. And, and so, um, so grace righteousness is really the gospel. The gospel would be this. It is that you and I are sinners saved by Christ's works, not our works. Does that make sense? You guys tracking with me there? So we are sinners saved by Christ's works, not, not our works. And works righteousness is, it would be kind of religion and that would be sinners saved by our works, keeping all the rules, moral conformity. And, and a lot of people think that's what Christianity is about. It's, a, it's an invitation to moral conformity. That's not what Christianity is about. The, the essence of the Christian message, you've heard me say this last few weeks, is not uh, behave, behave this way. It's behold. It's behold the beauty and the glory of who God is and what he's done for us. And... Uh, now, there's the two ways, but I thought the title of this message was like three ways to live. Where's the third way? That's messed up. I forgot it. I don't know where it is, somewhere hidden in there. Actually, I didn't know exactly where it is. The third way is actually found. There's actually two ways to work righteous. There's two ways that you can be your own savior. Two ways you can be your own savior. If you don't understand the gospel, you're going to try one of these two ways. Everybody's living within one of these two ways. You can do it by keeping all the rules or by breaking all the rules. You can do it by being religious. I'm going to live by the standard. Maybe I can appease God. Maybe God will bless me as a result of my behavior. Or you can say, hey, screw all of that keeping the rules, which a lot of people do. I'll find it on my own. It's the, it's the way of self-discovery. You know, I'll live by my own rules. That's relativism. That's the attitude of our society in a lot of ways. And then those that begin to, they, they think, well, I need to get my life together. Then they convert. They don't convert to Christianity. Oftentimes they convert to moral conformity. And, um, and so, so the two, there's two ways found in works righteousness. Religion, sinners saved by our works, keeping all the rules, moral conformity. And the third way is irreligion, breaking all the rules, self-discovery. Now, why would I call this a wake-up call to self-denial? Because in the gospel, Christ is your Savior. To come to Jesus, all you need is what? Need. And a lot of people don't have that. Because we're full of pride. We want to earn our right standing with God. In fact, what's interesting is that if you ask most Americans today, if they're going to heaven, most would say what? Of course I am. And then you ask the next question, so what makes you think you're going to heaven? Because I am basically a what? I'm basically a good person. And the Bible would say, no, you're not. No, you're not. Romans 3.23, for all of sin and fall short of the glory of God. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death, eternal separation. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. See, that's the gospel message. And so not until you begin to see your dire condition apart from Christ do you have this unspeakable glorious joy that overwhelms you with the magnitude of his provision, how he stepped in and rescued us. 
And I can typically tell when someone's not living in the reality. They don't have that unspeakable joy. They're still, they're, they're swinging from these extremes of either pride or despair in their behavior. Because they think that somehow that they're trying to, that, that God treats them based on their performance. No, he's going to treat you based on what Jesus did. His performance was perfect. He lived the life we should have lived. He died the death we should have died. And now we have perfect acceptance before God. It's amazing. So every, so every other religious system, that's why it's, the gate is, is wide. It's broad because it includes everybody that thinks that somehow they can work their way into a right relationship with God. The Bible says, no, you can't because you are clueless about how holy God is and how sinful you are. It'd be kind of like saying, hey, let's all jump to the moon. You're not going to do it. None of us. You might be able to jump a little higher than me. But guess what? You're not going to be able to do it. And see, that's, there's that gap. The gap that separates us from a holy, righteous God is our sinfulness. But guess what? Jesus did that for us. That is amazing. You talk about freeing. That's the reason why the gospel message is so life-liberating and so satisfying. And so this self-denial is a denial of the fact that, hey, you know what? I, I am lost. I desperately need a Savior. And all you need is need. All you need is to say, hey, wow, I... I want him. I want him in my life. I, I need him for my life. That's the wake-up call. And uh, I gave you some verses there. See, see, if you, I'll guarantee you, you ask your friends if they want to become a Christian or if you ask them, what is Christianity to you? Most people are actually rejecting Christianity, a Christianity that is not defined by the Bible. Did you know that a lot of people that are running away from God or running away from Christianity, it's a false concept? It's not really what the Bible actually teaches because I really believe that if most really begin to understand it, they wouldn't run from God. They'd run to him. I really do. And so oftentimes the first thing you have to do is just you have to kind of help them to understand. It's not based on their performance because most people would say this as it relates to Christianity. It's clean up. You've got to clean up, clean up to merit God's favor. But it's not, it's not clean up. It's you have God's unmerited favor. That's what brings the clean up. And that's a hard concept for us to wrap our minds around. Here's how I oftentimes will see if um, somebody really understands this is that I'll, uh, I'll ask them this question. Are you a Christian? If I were to ask you this question, uh, this question how would you respond? Are you, uh, are you a Christian? And there's three different responses oftentimes that I've heard people say. One is more of a defensive response. And they would say, of course I am. I go to church, I read my Bible, I pray. No, 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 you don't get it, dude. Because you can do all that and still not be a Christian. I asked you if you're a Christian. See, and that defensive response is obviously it's still based on your performance, isn't it? You're defining your relationship with God based on your performance. And uh, so you got the defensive. And then you got the one that's the, uh, that goes that other. It's more of a, a response of doubt. I'm trying. Are you a Christian? I'm trying. No, you don't get it either. You're still basing it on your performance. You're still basing it on your performance. It's not based on your performance. It's based on what Jesus did for you. So here would be a normal response. Are you a Christian? This would be a normal response. It wouldn't be defensiveness or doubt. It would be amazing delight. Yeah, can you believe it? Me, a Christian? I'm a child of God. I was an object of God's wrath, and now I'm his child. I have all the blessings of heaven. I'm lost in his love, full of his goodness, lost in his love. Oh, my goodness. 
And I really screw up royally, and yet I'm still his kid. He loves me, makes me want to try even that much harder to, to honor him, love him, worship him, live for his glory. That's my goal in life, is to live for his glory. Because of all that he's done for me, oh my goodness, I want to live for him. He has utterly given his life for me, and so I utterly want to live my life for him. So that's, that would be the normal response. <laughs> But we don't respond like that because we're all like beaten down. We get the enemy's hand pounding us, thinking that it's based on our performance. Oh, it's based on my performance. I might as well throw in the towel. I didn't perform so well this last week. No, of course you didn't, nor did I. Get your eyes off of you and get it on him. That's the reason why I said it's not the essence of the Christian message is not behave. It's behold And then the behavior follows that. He begins to transform us. I'll guarantee you, every hang-up that you have, every issue that you have in your behavior is based on an area of your life that you're still yet to really behold who he is and how he can meet your need in that area. And you're trying to have that need met in another way other than him. See, that's, that's the Christian life. That's what's so amazing. I mean, I still like, every weekend when I get up here, I'm like, I can't believe I get to talk to people about this topic that's so, so crazy amazing. It's just his love for us and what he's done for us. And so, okay, so that's the self-denial. I mean, and actually the denial is kind of like, you know, why wouldn't you say no to, to trying to earn your way uh, because he's given you as a gift. You're just saying, you're saying no to the mud puddle so that you can go on the Caribbean cruise. I mean, that's really what this, the denial is. Yeah, does the Bible, is the Christian life about denial? Yeah, absolutely. But you're denying something that's lesser for something that's much greater in God. That's how you overcome the sin in your life is because you realize what you have in him is so much better than anything that the world offers. Okay. Enough said in that. So why is, it, why is it so narrow? Because it takes a radical repentance and faith in Christ. And we know that Romans 2, 4 says the goodness of God leads us to repentance. And sin is anything, anything you seek to give you only what God can give you. And so a true Christian repents of his religion, thinking that I can earn a right relationship with God, and also his irreligion. So it goes like this. So when I come to God, I'm repenting. I'm turning from, uh, from my sin. I'm retur- I'm, uh, so repentance is a turn. It's a, it's a change of attitude and action towards sin. So as I'm turning from that and trusting in the Savior is what repentance is. My, uh, I had these grand plans before I got married. And, uh, uh, you know, I'm going to. I'm going to make a great living and buy a house. And I mean, I was talking about all these things uh, that I was going to do and I was headed on a good track. And, and then, uh, I met Nancy and, uh, I repented, I repented. And that's what repentance is. It's like, are you kidding? I'm not going to do all that. I'm going to marry her. And then we're going to do that together. That's what we're going to do. And then we didn't do that. (laughs) We did something else. We did what she wanted us to do. (laughs) That's messed up. Now they think about it. No, but I was more than happy to do that. And we kind of mutually put our plans together as God was leading us. And so it was pretty amazing. But that's what repentance is. Repentance is just like saying, why would I chase that when I have that? So that's repentance. 
It's like, uh, so, so when you repent of your religion and what you're saying, and Americans say, well, I've done some bad things, certainly, but my good thing, my good, my good outweighs my bad. And if you're really a believer, you recognize, no, my good never outweighs my bad. I, I am desperate for him. So you repent of your, your self-righteousness, but you also re- repent of your uh, irreligion. I can, the irreligion would be that I can find satisfaction in something other than God. Now listen to me. Everybody look up here just for a minute. There is nothing, there is nothing in this world. There's nothing in this world. I know you chase after a lot of different things. We all chase something. We're all chasing something. That's what keeps you alive. I understand that. You got to live for something. And whether you want to call it or not, that, that this, that something is the Lord of your life. But I'm telling you, there's nothing, there's nothing that will satisfy you like knowing Christ as your Savior and Lord. Nothing. There's no job. There's no relationship. There's no amount of money. There's no big home in the mountains. There's no, none of that. None of that will ultimately satisfy you like he can satisfy you. And I have to tell you that, and I, I need to tell you that every week because we're bombarded by billion-dollar industry of advertising in our society that's so materialistic. And, and, you know, it's just like we're just pounded thinking that we're just we're one purchase away from happiness. And if I can do this, and if I'm on this track, and I can be, ooh, you can be successful like this person and all that. Listen, none, none of that, none of that will really ultimately satisfy you like Jesus can. You were, you were made, you were created to know him and to walk with him and to experience him. You were made to make much of him, not for him to make much of you in that sense that all of life evolves around you, revolves around you. And so, uh, so the more you do that, the more you surrender your life to him, the more you're going to find, uh, you're going to find that that satisfies the deepest longing of your soul. And that's where we're headed. Here's the next one. The Christian life is a lifelong journey of repentance and faith in a growing relationship with Christ. Now, uh, I need to hit you with a couple hard things. Because I come from a background. How many, just show of hands, how many come from a background where they did a lot of altar calls? A lot of altar calls. You guys know what I'm talking about when I say altar calls? Okay. Anybody? Some of you, there's not very many. There's a few. How many do not know what I'm talking about when I say altar call? Okay, that's where there's this presentation, gospel presentation, and then they invite people to come up, kind of like at Billy Graham or Greg Laurie, some of the Harvest Crusade stuff that, where they invite people up. Now, I was raised in that, and, and of course, I got saved every week. Uh, and uh, my mom would say, because he needed to. And uh, I needed to get saved every week. But, but the tendency is that, and a lot of times people come into Desert Breed and say, why do you guys have an altar call? And I said, well... For a lot of different reasons, uh, but our altar call would be water baptism. Our altar call would be getting involved in the church. Our altar call would be walk with Jesus. In other words, so let me give you a couple statements here. So praying a prayer to ask Jesus into your life, even if it's emotional, isn't proof you're saved. But persevering in that faith to the end is. Because I've seen way too many people get dunked in the tank, baptism, water baptism, sign the card, walk the aisle. And two weeks, three weeks later, where are they? I've seen it happen right here at Desert Breeze. And we've seen a lot of people get baptized here. It breaks my heart because I'm thinking, did they really even understand what they were doing? And so I'm really, really set it. I really want people to understand. Do you understand what you're committing to? Do you understand this is, you've entered into a relationship with God. This isn't just fire insurance and now you're going to heaven and you can live however you please because you somehow said this magical prayer. That's not what that is. 
Salvation is a posture of repentance and faith toward Christ that you begin at your conversion and maintain for a lifetime. And uh, you're not a Christian because you prayed a prayer correctly, but because you placed your faith, hope, and love in the finished work of Jesus Christ. And you continue to do that each and every day. That's critical that you understand that. And that when you help your friends come to faith in Jesus Christ, that's not somehow, okay, you're in. Like it's all over after that. No, you're gonna, you've entered into a, this lifelong, see, it's not a destination. It's a lifelong journey of repentance and faith in a growing relationship with Christ. I mean, look at this text, verses 12 through 14. It talks about a way. This is a path. You're going to walk. You're walking in this way. This is talking like a daily, everyday kind of thing. Verses 15 through 17 talks about really giving us the idea that a healthy tree is going to bear good fruit. So the key to fruitfulness is healthiness. Are you healthy? Are you walking with Christ? Are you allowing him to transform your life? Is your life producing fruit? You shouldn't give two cents for what I'm saying up here if you couldn't talk to my wife and ask her about what kind of a guy I am behind the scenes. And if I haven't changed in the last 20 years, you ought to just toss the whole thing or just figure that I'm just a... I'm a counterfeit in some way. If I'm walking with Jesus, it's going to transform my life, and I'm going to bear fruit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Galatians 5, uh, 22 and 23. I'm going, to, I'm going to be growing in that. Regardless of circumstances, look at verse 23. I never knew you. You're going to have, listen, your Bible study, your prayer, you're coming here this morning. Is it just like, Got that off the list this week. Woo, he was a little long this morning. (laughs) No, you're here to encounter God, regardless of how short or long I might be. That's not the issue. The issue is, oh, God, I'm desperate to know you, to experience you. Overtake me by your beauty and your glory. Oh, I want you more than anything. See, that would be the longing of someone that really knows God. You get a glimpse of God. I'm telling you, game over. You're not going to be chasing after all the stuff you chase after. You want him more than anything. See, that's, that's what he's, he's getting at here. I never knew you. Do you know him? Do you know that he knows, knows you? And then hears these words of mine and does them. He's talking about a person who's building his life upon the rock. I know people that can quote this book like crazy. But when the storms of life rage in their life, they're flailing. They're falling all over the place. I'm not saying that you, you can't grieve. You can certainly grieve, but undergirding that grieving, there is a joy, there's a hope. And so that's, that's part of that. Whoops. I got things falling all over the place. Okay, let that go. Uh, so where am I? Here we are. That was distracting, wasn't it? So that leads to a life that most only dream about. So this is where we are. So we're almost finished. So it's a spiritual wake-up call to self-denial um, that leads to a life that most only dream about. Man, I'm telling you, this is, this is a life. It's a, it's a dream come true kind of life. And so he uses this metaphor, narrow gate and wide gate. The word narrow, some translations 
have straight, straight is the way. How many are reading from a Bible that actually says straight? Straight is the way. Some of you probably have more King James or New American Standard. The word straight means crushed, strangled, or smothered. Uh, how many have ever heard the statement, he's in dire straits? Dire straits, that's the idea here. So when he's saying uh, straight, straight is the way, it's, it almost seems like, and he's defining the Christian life, it seems like it's smothering, but it, but it leads to life, and life here is spaciousness. What Jesus is saying is that there is a narrow gate that looks like it's going to smother you, because people look at Christianity and goes, aha, that's too stifling, that's going to smother me, I don't want that. And he says, people look at it, but it leads to life. It leads to fields with flowers and trees and mountains and mountains tipped in snow. I mean, it's just, it's in a wonderful life. Now, it doesn't mean it's a painless or problem-free life. It doesn't mean that it's, uh, it's in, you know, you're healthy, wealthy, and wise. It means that regardless of what goes down in your life, you have what you want most, and that's him. And that he's at the center of your life, and you've never been more satisfied regardless of what goes down in your life. That's the idea. The wide gate looks like it leads to life, but instead it leads to destruction. And, and you see the wide gate promoted in America today. That's, yeah, go for it. So here's some fill in the blanks. So those who deny themselves to follow Christ discover they lose nothing and gain everything. Did you notice this in verse 14? He says life, verse 20, fruit. Verse 23, knowledge of God. Verse 24, storm-proof life. I love what J.I. Packer says. He says, when a man knows God, losses and crosses cease to matter to him. What, has, what he has gained simply has banished these things from his mind. That's a powerful, profound statement. Here's the next point on your notes. You are absolutely accepted, totally secure, and incredibly, incredibly significant to the only person in the whole universe whose opinion matters for all eternity. That's, that's what righteousness means. When he talks about this works righteousness versus a, a grace righteousness, through Jesus Christ, this is what you have. This is who you are through Christ. And uh, if you have the smile of God, this would be the smile of God, you can handle all the frowns of this world. You can handle the betrayal, uh, the rejection, all the losses. And by the way, even the successes are somewhat diminished. They're going to select the Heisman Trophy winner here this next week, if you guys follow sports, you know. And uh, the Heisman Trophy winner, whatever. I could do that. Okay, probably not. Probably not. I, I couldn't, I didn't go very far in my football career. But that doesn't really, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter in light of this. All the careers in the world don't matter. Heisman Trophy winner, if you won, I don't even know if they could do that, but you can win the Heisman Trophy for four years in a row. That still would not even come close to what you have here. You are absolutely accepted, totally secure, and incredibly significant to the only person in the whole universe whose opinion matters for all eternity. For all eternity. Now check this out. Here's the last statement. This is where we kind of wrap it up. If your identity is in, the, in Christ, it doesn't matter whether you have a good life, a good day, a good career, a good marriage, or a bad one. To the degree you understand that is to the degree you're not afraid of anything and your life will be fruitful and stormproof. That, that's how he kind of ends it. He says, 
He talks about building your life on the rock. In other words, you can endure the storms of life. And by the way, did you notice that he didn't say if the storms? No, he says when they're coming. And so the storms actually reveal where your life, where you've built your life. And so uh, if you build your life upon the rock, your life is going to be storm-proof. And not only that, you can be fruitful. That's what he's talking about. There's a fruitfulness in your life. I gave you all the verses here, but let me end with this. Um, Verse 22, uh, he says, On that day, people will say to me, he's talking about Jesus. What day is he talking about there? Judgment day. There's a judgment day. Listen to me. If you haven't followed me this whole time, listen to me now. There's a judgment day coming. On that day, Every one of us, every one of us here will stand before the Lord Jesus Christ and give an account of our lives. That's what he's talking about there. On that day, judgment day. And by the way, if you don't let him bear your judgment, that's why he came. The first time he came to bear our judgment. If you don't allow him to bear your judgment, you will inevitably face his judgment. Um... John three sixteen through 19 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that through him the world might be saved. And then he goes on, he says, Whoever believes in him is not condemned, but whoever does not believe in him is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment that light has come into the world. This is Jesus speaking, by the way. Here's the judgment. Light has come into the world, but men prefer darkness over light. Why would people reject Jesus? Because they prefer darkness over light. And so... We will all face this judgment day. And by the way, as I was reflecting on this this last week, these are the most infinitely and eternally terrifying words that you could ever face. That when you take your last breath on earth and your first breath in heaven, however that kind of works out, and you stand before the one who would rather die than to live all eternity without you, and he says to you, these are the most terrifying words you could ever hear, I don't know you. That would, that would break my heart if that was true about anybody here. As a pastor, my heart, my heart cry is that you would know him. And yet at the same time, there's no greater words. There's no greater words. There's no words that are... They're infinitely and eternally so wonderful and so comforting for when you stand before him and he says, that's mine. I know him. He knows me. Come on in. Those are wonderful words. Those are wonderful words. Would you bow your heads with me? Let's take a moment. I want to give you an opportunity to to make a confession of faith this morning. Maybe it's it's been a while. Maybe you haven't uh, ever made a confession of faith. And remember, this isn't just a it's not a destination. It's a journey, and and this is an opportunity to say, Hey, I want I want to know this Savior that Pastor Ray's talking about this morning. You say, well, how do I do that? Well, you, you, you do what we said here. You just kind of acknowledge your sin that separates you from God, both your, your, your religion and your irreligion. You're thinking that somehow you can earn a right standing with God or even all the things that you've chased after as a substitute for God. You just acknowledge that. Say, God, yeah, 
I'm chasing a lot of stuff, but God, I want to, I want to chase you. I want to pursue you. I want to seek you with all of my heart. And so I acknowledge my sin. I believe that you died on the cross for all my sins. And so I can now stand before you completely righteous because of what you've done for me. And I can have this relationship with you. And, and you turn your life over to his, his lordship. And, and you say, hey, this is the beginning of a wonderful relationship that I'm going to, to pursue with all of my heart. So, God, I pray for those this morning that need to, to do that and say that. And those of us that are believers that need to renew that today and every day. Jesus, we want you more than anything. We pray that, uh, that you would overtake us this morning with your presence. Help us to see your breathtaking beauty, your indescribable glory. Lord, we want to live for you. We want to make much of you. We want to live for your glory in every way. And just as your heads are bowed and eyes are closed, I wasn't kind of sure how I was going to end this, but I just, if maybe for the first time this morning, and maybe it's not the first time, but maybe you're just kind of renewing that. Let's go with the first time. This is the first time you're doing it this morning. You're saying, yeah, I want Jesus in my life. I want you to do something. I want you to look up and give me eye contact, and I'll do it according to the room because the room is kind of, arch so to my right and your left if there's anybody in this room that would give me just eye contact look up at me and say hey i'm making a confession of faith this morning for the first time for the first time you can look up here at me look up at me yep i see you i see you anybody here in the middle section middle section middle section how about over here to my Left, you're far right. You need to make a confession. How many would say, hey, I need to renew that. This is something that's been really important to me over here in this section. Yep, I see you. Yep, you can look up at me. Look up at me. I'm going to look across the room. Yep, praise God. Praise God. God, you see those that are making this confession of faith in you this morning. This is huge. This is big. God, I just pray that it wouldn't be just this, this one weekend that we would live this out for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand with me? Let me conclude by reading to you something as we wrap up our time together. Uh, We head into a brand new teaching series next weekend talking about rekindling the love, the joy, the peace, and the hope as we wrap up the year, and then we're going to head into a new series. How many would say that your life is crazy busy? Crazy busy? Show of hands. Yeah, well, we're going to deal with that because I think that's a lot of the reason why we have a tough time really hearing God and walking with God. We're going to kind of deal with that after the first of the year. But let me read to you this uh, hymn. Uh, I love a lot of the uh, great old hymns. And uh, let me see if I can find it here. This is... uh, My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. Let me read that to you. On Christ the solid rock. How many are familiar with that hymn? Here's our concluding time together. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name. His oath, his covenant, his blood... Support me in the whelming flood. When all around my soul gives way, he then is all my hope and stay. When he shall come with trumpet sound, oh, may I then in him be found dressed in his righteousness alone, faultless to stand before the throne. On Christ, the solid rock, I stand. All other ground is sinking sand. All other ground is sinking sand. In Jesus' name. And everyone said, amen. Amen. God bless you.